All right, well, good morning, everybody. How was everyone's week? Good? Okay. So far? <laughs> Fair to Midland? <laughs> We're still here. <laughs> All right, well, let's start off by word of prayer, shall we? Father, thank you so much for just letting us gather uh, here today, Lord, and that we get another chance to be able to worship you and to study your word. Just ask that you would bless our time together, uh, bless our conversation, and just give us wisdom and insight. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so does everyone remember what topic we're on today? Well, Maddie doesn't because she wasn't here. So we're on the argument called the argument from desire. So what do I mean by that? So this is another one. This one works for the, the touchy-feely folks, not the real logical people. Well, sometimes it does because if they really start to, to dig deep inwardly, um, I like how this argument presents itself. So it's the argument from desire. Can we know that God exists from what we have created within? from our own just natural being. Let me flesh this out a little bit more. So philosophically, if you want to do it um, you know, in the formal way, the formal argument goes something like this. There, Because I want to show you that there is a logical side in how to present this argument. Although I would never present it like this to somebody I'm dialoguing with, but I want you to see that there is a logical argument to it. The major premise is this. Every natural or innate desire in us points to a corresponding real object that can satisfy that desire. That's premise number one. So what do I mean? Well, for example, there's hunger, right? And there happens to be food that can satisfy that hunger. There's thirst. There happens to be drink and water that can satisfy that thirst. There happens to be drowsiness. And there happens to be sleep that can satisfy that desire for sleep. There are many natural desires that have corresponding real fulfillments for that desire. Does that, does that make sense? Now, the minor premise is this. There exists in us a desire which nothing in time, nothing on earth, and no creature can satisfy. Has anybody ever read anything by C.S. Lewis? Oh, good. A lot of people. Okay, because we're going to be quoting a lot of C.S. Lewis today. Any Chronicles of Narnia fans? Okay. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite books in the Narnia series, The Silver Chair, so we're going to really delve into that one too, okay? So some of these desires in the minor premise, what are those desires that's nothing in time, nothing on earth, no creature can satisfy? Any ideas? Those types of desires? Well, it's those things such as meaning, dignity, morality, immortality, a sort of yearning for truth, goodness, beauty, right? These are those inward desires that no earthly creature is able to fulfill them. I mean, we can get tastes of these things in this life, but we are left with a desire for more. It doesn't satisfy us forever, and it may satisfy us for just a moment. The question is this, what's this continual lack of fulfillment? Is this just the way that life is and we have to deal with it? Or is there something that it points beyond? or something that it points to, a kind of a cosmic pointer, as it were. So here's the formal argument, it's like this. The major premise, I'll restate it. Every natural or innate desire in us points to a corresponding real object that can satisfy that desire. The minor premise, there exists in us a specific desire 
in which nothing in time, nothing on earth, and no creature can satisfy. So the conclusion is this. There exists something outside of time, earth, and creatures which can satisfy this desire. This isn't only an argument for the existence of God when you really start to think about it, but also for heaven and the nature of God and the nature of heaven itself. I really, really enjoy presenting this argument with folks because it's very introspective. You start to think, uh, when you think about these things, you know, why do I desire love? Why do I desire morality? Why do I desire justice? If someone's somewhat rational and you're having this conversation with them, they're going to start to think on these things. Part of what makes it so effective is that it causes us to actually reflect. So you can start with pretty much anything. A good novel. See, so it segues, right? If you just talk to somebody about a good novel that they have read or a good movie that is popular that appeals deeply to our human experience, all the ladies are going to get this reference. How many of you have seen Nicholas Sparks' movie, The Notebook? Okay. No? <laughs> you haven't? So what's the point of, of The Notebook? I'll give you, a, for Mary, a, a brief premise because you haven't seen it or read the novel by Nicholas Sparks. This young couple falls madly in love, kind of a Romeo and Juliet type thing. Their parents don't want them to get married. They end up getting married. Um, she, fast forward later on, she's suffering from dementia and or Alzheimer's. Uh, there's no formal diagnosis in that. And she really doesn't remember who he is. And he's just retelling the entire story every single day of their whole love story and, and how they met. So it's like 51st Dates meets Romeo and Juliet kind of deal. Okay. But the point is, why was that movie so popular? It's one of those things where it appeals intrinsically to us for that innate desire of something that we can't fulfill. And that's the, the feel-goodness of those types of movies and those types of novels. That's why they're, they're blockbusters, right? And it's funny when you realize that because even the atheists love those movies because it's satisfying this desire within ourselves to prove that something outside of ourselves can be fulfilled, okay? Uh, and it's the things that people crave. It's more than an argument, it's, it's a meditation, it's an illumination within ourselves. So at this point, I think we should note, for those of you that are familiar with Buddhism, that there's a profound contrast here between Buddhism and Christianity on this matter of desire. Um, we've actually come across this a couple times in Juvie with some kids that are studying Buddhism. Have you guys ever come across that? No? And no New Agers that tout Taoism or Buddhism? What's that? Uh, when they were um, quoting Buddhism to us? Yeah. Well, we'll get to it on, on, on how they, they use the Buddhist example of, of desire. So the Buddhist says that the whole problem, uh, that of desire, in order to eliminate desire or eliminate the attachment to things that you were, so you may not be so frustrated, right? That's the whole idea of, of Buddhism, is just eliminate all earthly possessions, eliminate all earthly attachments, so then that desire or the frustration of not being able to um, satisfy that desire will then be eliminated. Just, just take it away and, and no more desire, right? The Christian might diagnose the problem the same way. Um, Augustine had said this, the mother of the vices is pride. I 
I am Augustinian in my view of original sin. I sort of agree with Augustine in this, that the mother of vices is pride, but I take it a little step further. Um, you can almost argue that the mother of all vices is covetousness. Here's why. It's a twisted desire at the very root of things. So if the case that the mother of vices is a desire, you can say that pride or the um, twisting of it is the forsaking of God in order to seek pleasure in self. Right? Does that make sense? Um, so self-desire to please oneself. And this is really where the similarity ends between Christianity and Buddhism. So the Buddhist solution is to cure the headache of desire by just decapitation, completely eliminate it. Get rid of all desires. You know, live on a mountaintop somewhere with absolutely nothing so you no longer have any desires. Let me ask you guys, do you think that'll work? Uh-uh. Why? Why don't you guys think it'll work? We still have our thought life. Exactly. Because we still have our thought life. That's what Devin said. That's why that won't work, to just eliminate all desires. The Christian actually wants to purify those desires and then raise it to the level of godliness so that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We can actually go all the way back, take this back to Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. This is far, um, this is passion for desire being a bad thing. It, it, it's not showing that desire or passion are bad things. It just needs to be purified and directed in the correct direction, the right direction. Does that make sense? Because if, if we try to eliminate it, like uh, my wife said, we still have our thought life and it's not going to work. I don't know, have you guys ever been on a hike or alone in the woods or whatever? I mean, your thoughts just start going crazy and, and you really can't eliminate that. There's, there's no way. So desire, of course, is a good thing. Now, I promised one of the Chronicles of Narnia books, The Silver Chair, C.S. Lewis gives us this image. We have a, a young girl, Jill, who is lost, and she comes to a stream, and she's so thirsty, there happens to be a lion there. You guys all probably know who the lion is, right? Because he's going to start talking, so it's a talking lion. She doesn't know this lion, so naturally she's afraid it's a lion and it's talking to you. Are you thirsty? Says the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do it? Because the lion's just on the other side of the stream, right? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. So you get the metaphor that C.S. Lewis is making here, right? 
for our spiritual thirst, our spiritual desire. And I love that end. There is no other stream, says the lion. Well, thirst in particular in this case is what Lewis was getting at. So also another C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity. Anyone ever read that one? Okay. C.S. Lewis puts this, this idea of desire in three different ways which we can deal with on this idea of pleasure. The first one, the fool's way, is to put the blame on the things themselves. All would seek satisfaction in things which we have before us, yet all are disappointed. He says people, they go from marriage to marriage, always thinking that the next marriage will be better than the one before it, and yet are always disappointed. Or the ultimate vacation. There's certainly pleasures in vacation, yet it never provides what you anticipate, and there's always this desire for more. Anyone ever experienced that? You've had a wonderful vacation, but it just doesn't, you know what I mean? It's, there's, still, there's still this empty, this lack thereof, even after. It can be a fantastic vacation. Either it's like, oh crud, I get to get back to reality, or just it just wasn't what you built up in your mind and it doesn't work. It leaves you wanting more. It leaves you wanting more, that's the key. The second way that C.S. Lewis deals with it, he says, the way of the disillusioned cynic. Don't expect too much pleasure and then you won't be disappointed, right? So my son and I kind of have a, a joke on this. We call ourselves perpetual cynics. Basically, um, we always expect to be disappointed, so when it happens, we're not surprised, and then when something pleasant does happen, then we're pleasantly surprised, right? So <laughs> that's, that's us. And C.S. Lewis, too, by the way, he held to that view. So here's the Christian way of how to handle this idea of pleasure. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. Here's C.S. Lewis's quote from Your Christianity. A boy feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling feels the desire to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel the desire for sexual satisfaction, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable or explanation is that I was made for another world. I love that conclusion from Lewis right? These spiritual yearnings seem to be universal, meaning dignity, morality, immorality, and a sort of yearning for truth, goodness, and beauty. It's in every culture that you can find, every single one, regardless of the, quote, lowliness of the culture. You know, a, a tribe in the middle of Zimbabwe, it doesn't matter. They still have these yearnings for truth and dignity, these are unquenchable longings. This gives us a different reflection on the nature of pleasure and happiness. That God is not a killjoy, quite the contrary. He's actually the source of pleasure. He's the one that created it. He created pleasure, created joy, and wants us to experience it. But focused on the right path, right? Another C.S. Lewis books. Screw tape letters, anyone ever read those ones? Mike, you remember when we went to go see the play? It was Screwtape Lester, wasn't it? No, it was The Great Divorce. Oh, it was The Great Divorce. Oh, we were supposed to go see Screwtape Letters, and then, yeah, okay. Anyways, in the Screwtape Letters, there's a passage where Screwtape, who is the demon in this, this story, oh, let me back up, for those of you that have never read the Screwtape Letters. It's a first-person account between uh, Screwtape, he's, he's a demon, and his uncle Wormwood. 
and they're writing these letters back and forth to each other, um, basically just lamenting the nature of man and how they can overcome man for their side. And, and in this reading, you get an idea um, into the mind of the other side. And there's a lot of very interesting passages in this, uh, this book, and I definitely recommend you guys re read it. It's, it's fantastic. It, it really is to kind of open up your ideas as far as what potentially is going on on the spiritual realm. And to have C.S. Lewis write this, especially in, in fictional form, is it's, it's just outstanding. Um, so I'll get back to it. So there's a passage where Screwtape the demon, he argues that all of the real pleasures come from the enemy. Well, you have to reverse it. Who's the enemy according to them? Oh, well, that'd be God, right? Here's that passage. Quote, he is a hedonist at heart. Okay, let me define the terms. Does anybody know what a hedonist is? A hedonist is someone who seeks after pleasure, seeks after desire, okay? Um, if any of you are also looking for book recommendations, I'd recommend John Piper's book, Desiring God, where he argues for the idea of Christian hedonism, meaning that we can seek ultimate uh, fulfillment, ultimate pleasure, ultimate satisfaction and desire in God, uh, apart from worldly desires, okay? So back to Screwtape here. He is a hedonist at heart. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's vulgar, Wormwood, and he has a bridgey mind. There are things for humans to do all day long, sleeping, walking, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. Notice that? Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us, meaning the demons. So it's that God has a corner on pleasure and then all we can do is twist it and misdirect it. We do not create new pleasures. God has created boundless pleasures. We often do not pursue joy in the way that we can really fulfill it. Here's another C.S. Lewis book. <laughs> can you tell I like Lewis? Um, it's called In the Weight of Glory. He says this, quote, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child content to play with mud plies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what it means to have a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Does that make sense? We are half-hearted even in the pursuit of our own pleasures. We pursue things that we think are going to satisfy us, but actually they undermine our pleasure in the long run. Now, are you guys understanding how you can have this dialogue with somebody with, and you just open up the conversation by talking about a good movie or a TV show or a novel in which they read and you can ask, why did you like it? Well, I watched, seriously, I'm gonna go back to The Notebook. I, I liked the movie, The Notebook. Why did you like it? It's just a good story. Okay, come on, let's do, let's do the Alan Schlemann thing, right? Why is, it a, why is it a good story? Well, it makes me feel good. <laughs> Come on, flush that out more. Why does it make you feel good? Well, because it just points to their, their absolute love for each other, and, and you don't see that today anymore. Okay, now there's your segue. You're like, huh, absolute love. That's an interesting topic. Why do you desire absolute love? Why does that make you feel good or, or want that thing in your life? What about that would be a good thing to you? Do you see how this can work into any natural conversation? 
So that's what this argument of desire is all about. It's about getting us to meditate on our desires. So then what are the alternatives to this idea? Well, uh, the atheist has to reduce all of these things to a mere quirk of our physiology. What do I mean by that? Like an underdeveloped pituitary gland or something. Think about that. How does that work? Which, ironically enough, would make human beings the absolute most miserable creatures. Because if we can ponder our predicament, as rocks and animals cannot do, then we as human beings would be most miserable because there are no answers in the atheistic view. Does that make sense? So here's, here's the thing, and I want you to continue going with this argument when you're having these discussions with people and, and they're pondering their predicament. I desire love. I desire ultimate love and the perfect unity. And you're like, great, you can ponder this idea. Is there a solution to it? Well, no, there isn't. Well, that's rather depressing, isn't it? What's the point? See, that's why um, we, we had a conversation with a fellow on whenever we were there, Matt. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and he was talking about his, his daughter dating a non-believer, you know, and they're talking about marriage. And he's like, oh, boy. Um, we have some successes with missionary dating. <laughs> Others, you know, we don't know. But I, I asked him, I'm like, so is he an atheist or is he an agnostic? He said, well, I don't even think he believes in a higher power. I'm like, okay, atheist. In my mind, that's actually easier to deal with than an agnostic because an atheist, you, you can show just the absolute despair of where that worldview is going to lead because you have the ability to ponder all these desires. You have the, the ability to think about, gosh, I wish there was absolute morality. I wish there was justice and righteousness, and I wish there was love in the world. If you don't feel those things, well, then we have a classification for that. It's literally a psychopath, right? But if you have the ability to ponder those desires, then you also have the ability to realize that in your worldview, there's nothing to satisfy those desires. And what's the point? It's just... Uh, you just become like Solomon at that point, right? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Like, what is the bloody point? There's nothing that fits here. So the argument for desire says that there is a goal and there is a way to get there. Hope in the face of death. Is this just wish fulfillment or is it a pointer to something beyond? The conviction that there must be retribution for the monstrous evil in life. Will there be any balancing of the scales, or will injustice be left unpunished? Okay, let's flesh that one out. And this is kind of a premise to next week's topic. Remember, we're dealing with the problem of evil. So here's the idea. Who here in any worldview, whether it be Buddhist, atheist, Christian, whatever, Muslim, it doesn't matter, New Age, that you don't have this innate desire that the absolute monstrosities of evil that we see on our planet today will have retribution someday. Does that give anybody peace? It does me. I'm not going to lie. That the great evils we see that will someday be punished, if not that I get to witness it, I know it's going to happen, and I'm okay-ish. I'm, okay I'm not going to say I'm okay, but okay-ish. I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't drive me nuts where I have to go out and do the one that's doing the retribution. Does that make sense? Am I the only one that finds joy that, that evil will be repaid someday? Okay, good. So does the atheist, if they're consistent in their worldview. If they're not, 
then you have to ask them that question. And they're going to give, the, their, in their mind, the logical argument, there's so much evil in the world. So how can God exist with so much evil in the world? You're like, well, you just stated the truth. Yes, I agree with you. There is so much evil in the world. What are you going to do about it? Well, there, uh, 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 well, there has to be retribution, right? Won't that give you peace to know that it will be punished somehow, someday? Sure. And that's that segue into the, the holiness of God. Are the things that people do, the good things forgotten? Is there no structure to the universe? Is there no remembrance of evil and no remembrance of good? Right? The argument from desire starts with people, with what people yearn for. What is the source of the problem? What's the answer given of how you can achieve that satisfaction? Is it possible to achieve satisfaction in this life or no? Do we just have to be cynical and detach ourselves from our desires and not pursue them? Is there a true satisfaction? So enough of me yakking at you guys. So I want to open this up to, to dialogue because, again, I feel that this is a very powerful way to start engaging those folks because it can begin from any topic of something that they like, literally anything, a novel, movie, TV show, rock that they found, agates in the creek, anything really. And you can start to have this conversation. It's a very, very easy segue. Does it make sense? Have, has anyone, and I, I want to hear it, has anyone popped in your guys' mind, and I want to hear how you're thinking, how you can flesh out and have this conversation with somebody? Friend, family, coworker? No? Nobody specific has popped in? Mike? Well, the person says, I have the desire to be the richest person in the world. Yeah, and then you ask you know, and why. That's not going to be satisfied in this world. Right. You know, but trying to get them convinced there's something more than wealth. You know, the more they get wealthier, the more they want to fade us from these people. Yeah. You know, even though it doesn't satisfy them, they think if I just get to the next level, if I just get a bigger house, if I just get a fancier car. But they don't seem to understand that that's not going to help. So how do you get them to understand that next step? You can have all you want, like uh, Solomon, mm -hmm. and it's not going to make a difference. They don't see that in their mind. No, they don't. And, and I like to have that conversation. So those listening at home, um, Dr. Mike made the comment that what about those who desire extreme wealth, like you know Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos kind of style? And what do I mean by extreme wealth? Let me give you an analogy. If Bill Gates were walking down the street and saw a stack of $10,000 on the street, it will literally cost him more money to bend down and pick it up in the value of his time than it would to get the $10,000. That is extreme wealth, people. Okay? So, but even those people, as we see, are absolutely miserable. Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. They're just miserable, miserable people with no fulfillment, right? How do you get somebody, Dr. Mike's comment, how do you get somebody to realize that that the more extreme wealth that you have isn't going to satisfy, that the, that the wealth doesn't satisfy here on earth. You have to go back to where that desire comes from in them. And you have to have them be introspective of asking the tough questions in themselves. Why? 
Why do I desire to be wealthy? Not that do I, but why? What is my innate reason that I want to desire to be wealthy? Yeah. I think it's aligned with power and influence. Right. Not just options and luxuries, but I think it's just power and fame and influence. Power and fame and influence. Take it a step further. What comes with power and fame and influence and control? Keep going back. Freedom. You have the freedom and the luxury to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and however you want to do it. So you're desiring this freedom to not be da, 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 in bondage, right? <laughs> or a form of bondage. How do they view bondage? Well, working for the man. But you get so much power, you get to become God. God yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that's a whole different, different story. The, the, you get so much power that you get to become God. Um, well, we can take a look at how that ended for folks that thought that idea. Yes? It's, it's also interesting, all these men that are beyond wealth, they all search for eternal life. I know. Right, yes. Worldly means. Absolutely. Right, look at Walt Disney, cryogenically frozen. Yes. Yeah. Well, look at Bill Gates. I mm-hmm. mean, he, getting into the... Anyway, <laughs> you know, because he wants to go. Yeah. Because money isn't fulfilling, so he's going to get into the other forms that he has no business getting into. Right. And the, the God complex. Yeah. Right? I mean, you can take a, take a look at that, and then the idea that the more power, the more wealth that you have, then you become as God. Well, again, how did that end up for all those folks in history that had that God complex? Can we think of a few? Well, we're studying one right now, Herod. Yeah, right. They still died. died. Still stayed dead. Well, that brings up another argument that you can bring up with the atheist and this innate wanting justice. Because I think, like you said, other than psychopaths, Everybody wants to see justice served. Right. You talk to anybody who endured 9-11, right. who went through it, they, they like to hear how the portrayers of that were punished. Mm-hmm. Or even, you know, you tell them, well, they died. Right. What I believe is they died and went to hell. What they believed is they died and got a lot of virgins. 70. <laughs> To be exact, but yeah. But they went to hell. They love hearing that. Right. Even though they might not believe in hell. Right. Because then, oh, well, I'm glad. Mm-hmm. But you just said there is no hell. I know. But it feels good to think that the you know people who perpetrated. But, but but why? I mean, even go back further. Why does it feel good to have that innate sense of justice fulfilled? What in us? has that desire? Where could that desire possibly come from and how can that be evolved in us? How is that beneficial for society? I think it might come from oppression. Okay. And you're tired of being oppressed. You're okay. tired of feeling like, you know, we all have, you know, we, we can't buy more hours in a day, mm-hmm. no matter how rich you are. Right. Mm-hmm. And then and part of it is see how much money do they need. <laughs> right. It's and the help that if instead of doing this with it they could they could actually help those mm-hmm. people. 
But if they did, they would lose their power. So they're creating their own hell. Yeah, the, yeah, they are. And then, and then you look at Lewis's first argument, mere Christianity. I mean, that's the fool, right? Because the fool blames the object itself. When we are the ones creating this, this storm for ourselves, yet the fool is going to say, well, we saw it. It was the very first statement after sin. What was the very first statement? Oh, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she deceived me and I ate. I'm like, dude, that is the gutsiest move I ever saw in my life. The guy blamed God for his sin <laughs> by giving him the gift of his wife. I'm like, wow. <laughs> when I read that as a young Christian, I couldn't believe Adam had that much gall. Holy cow. <laughs> I'll just leave it there, but that was a crazy, crazy statement. You start blaming the object, and that's the fool. And that's the reason for your discontent is the object, not what you're already doing to yourself. And golly, do we see that today in America, that we're so willing to blame our circumstances or something outside of ourselves rather than our own dumb choices. So, I mean, especially right now, what's, what's kind of um, bothering me. Have, has anyone gone out to eat lately? Have you guys gone to any store that provides any type of service? What's the overwhelming theme happening right now? Wear a mask. <laughs> no wear a mask, no. Uh, there's no workers. I mean, these people are unbelievably short-staffed. I'm seeing the same signs posted kind of everywhere. It's saying the entire world is short-staffed right now. Please be kind. Have you guys seen those posted? So, I mean, we're seeing this overwhelming theme of there's no workers, yet... The other day, I saw a panhandler on the corner of a freeway intersection, and on his sign, he said, we'll take any work. I'm like, if you walk a quarter mile into town, there's like eight restaurants I know that are hiring right now. <laughs> Personally, right? So what is he blaming? Is he blaming something outside of himself or his choices? Something outside of himself, right? I'll take any work. No, you won't. Well, and even, uh, you know, socialism, people want socialism because it's the rich people's fault that they're not doing well. Right. You know, it's the wealthy. It's the, it, that's why they're not thriving is because the wealthy thrive too much. Yeah, this idea it's, that yeah. is outside of us. Yes. It's someone else's fault. Like I said, the first argument, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Holy crap. I still can't believe he said that. And God didn't just kill him right there. Right? <laughs> right? I mean... Who else did he have to blame? I know. If he's not going to blame himself, that's all there was there. I know. Was that weird talking snake? He was already slithered away. There was this talking snake. Yeah, that's unusual. I mean, to see that. <laughs> Uh -huh. The neighbor that I have. Yeah, uh, the good moral guy. That one across the, yes. the street. Yeah. They have no need for my God. They they are very moral people. They do good deeds all the time. They mm -hmm. are, but they want nothing to do with anything to do with my my God. Right, but then you ask them. So why? Why are you being moral? So how does it benefit you to be moral? It feels good. But why? Why does it feel good? Let me, let me um, present uh, an ethics argument, right? And, and it goes like this. A blind 
young boy, you're a shopkeeper, a blind young boy comes into your store and um, purchases $3 worth of goods and he hands you a $20 bill back, okay? He's blind and he's a young boy and he doesn't know any difference. Do you do the right thing to give him his correct $17 and change? Or do you just give him a five and pocket the rest for yourself? See, the ones that are being moral, why? Why are you being moral? It, technically, it doesn't benefit you. Why does it benefit you? I know there are arguments um, like from Immanuel Kant and stuff that, that it benefits society because it creates this idea that there is a moral right code in which we must all follow so we all kind of fall in line and then society functions as it should. I get it. But the point is, why? Why? Why is that even there? Because if evolution were true, it's pretty much everyone for themselves. Survival of the fittest, right? Isn't that the entire premise of evolution? Everyone for themselves? So how would me giving this kid his correct $17 and change really help me at that point? So I would ask your neighbor, why? Why are you doing these things? Why are you moral? Why do you obey the law? Well, so I won't get arrested. Well, what if you're never caught? Why do you help the poor? Well, because it's the right thing to do. Says who? Who cares? Right? You guys remember our, our discussion that Walker had with Chandler. Why is it wrong to own a, another human being, to own a slave? I mean, if we're all just a cosmic burp four and a half billion years ago that climbed out of the, climbed out of the primordial ooze, who cares? Because there's no intrinsic worth. Not arguing what you're doing is wrong. Obviously, your morality is great, but why are you doing it? It's not going to benefit you in the grander scheme of things of you being the most important. But why can't it makes me feel good suffice as an answer? Because it makes me feel good? How does the argument with them go further? Because I feel like that would be an end to my arguing with them because it feels good. I mean, it would. we know it's a moral law giver. Mm -hmm. It's written on our hearts. But with an atheist or somebody who is genuine, they're the hardest people to come to Christ. Oh, because I know, because they're, they're already moral. And they're good people. Right. They have no need for a savior. So. so then it comes to that obvious point that even what Christ had said, at that point you just preach the gospel and shut up. Because I don't have the authority to argue this person into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I don't. I really, really don't. And I can give great answers on why he is projecting on himself a God complex because he is now the ultimate maker of right and wrong. He's deciding his morality is good for himself. But who cares? Yeah, Lucy. It goes back to how have you ever told a lie? Oh, I know. Right. Because there is a moral law, even it's in our hearts. So we take, it, take that person back to the moral law. Because without a moral compass, there is, we, 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 will, we will degrade to the lowest common denominator. Well, we're seeing that right now. We'll do the worst that we can because there's nobody that, there's nobody's learning in school and, and you know, that we've got, that there's a God and he has a moral compass and that we're, we follow that as believers, we follow it. Yeah. So when they don't have that, then it's like, so have you ever told a lie? Have you ever, you know, mm -hmm. it's, so it's it's so effective because it brings people back, it gets them out of their, what, puts them out their conscious and gets them yes. logical. Yes, yeah. logical. And, and we've fallen so far away from that. 
um, especially in our education system, because now we just educate based on rote memorization to pass an exam, right? I mean, in the past, if you guys are old enough to remember, when you were taught arithmetic, you were taught one bottle and then another bottle. Now you have two bottles, and I'm gonna take another bottle, another bottle, now I have four bottles, right? You understand how you get to two plus two equals four. You can see it in your mind's eye. I have two things, and I have another two things. Oh, great, now I have one, two, three, four things, okay? Now we're just taught, oh, you just memorized two plus two equals four. That's it, done. Does that make sense? How the logic as far as why you come to answers has completely ended in our society and it creates this idea that, well, that's just the way it is. <laughs> why, right? I mean, that, that's when you get down to, people think that Rene Descartes was absolutely insane because he started back questioning everything and then he found the, the greatest question, I think, therefore I am. His idea, and I, re I remember going over this in class because he was fleshing out, well, why do I even exist? Am I just like part of the matrix type of deal, just a part of a grander illusion? And he said, huh, okay, so if there is an illusion, I have to exist because I'm being eluded by it, illusioned by it, I'm being deceived by it. You have to have someone to be deceived to have an effectual illusion, right? So we think that that was an insane premise, but no, it actually, it was great. It was great for him to, to work backwards and to think through all these logical steps to finally come to the conclusion, no, I actually exist because I'm thinking about it. Because I'm thinking about my existence, I have to exist. I can't be part of a dream. That doesn't work. You guys ever see Inception? That's a weird movie. It's like a dream within a dream within a dream, right? And then you just fall asleep <laughs> and then have your own dream. So it's, it's not like that, like in real society, but it's, it's we have this and we need to get back, especially when you're having those conversations. That's why in this, this class, uh, I'm trying to, to work into and teach us the, the rules and laws of logic so you can kind of retrain people's brains when you're talking to them because otherwise you're just gonna beat your head against the wall. Seriously, folks, you're, the answers you're gonna hear, you're like, what? Why? Why are the things coming out of your mouth that are coming out of your mouth? It just doesn't make any logical sense. So, um, but I love those ideas, especially when we have those great moral people and they absolutely reject our need for a savior because they're like, I don't have anything that I need to be saved from. But again, it, it, it boils down to, ultimately, we don't have that authority. I know it kind of stinks, huh, Margaret? You know, that we can't effectively argue somebody into the kingdom of Christ. And, and it hurts because you look at these people and you're like, why aren't you believing? I mean, I've given you every logical argument, but why, won't, why, oh, why, oh, why won't you believe? And it's just awful. But also the converse of that is true. It's very freeing because now when you do have those conversations and you mess up on your arguments or you misquote facts or dates or figures or you completely obliterate the argument, it's not up to you. And no matter how badly you screwed it up, if that person's going to get saved, they're going to get saved, right? That's very freeing, at least to me. I mean, yes? Well, back to your question a little while ago, you asked if anybody came to mind. Yeah. You don't have to repeat this for the recording. Okay. Like, absolutely. Like, I mean, I'll just say my, my middle brother is who my heart has been very burdened for lately, just want to say. I've actually invited him to class before, oh. but um, yeah, it's, it's, 
even though it's the Holy Spirit, when <laughs> you're reading scripture and you just think of that person, right. or you know, just you're out, and you're just breathing the air, and you're like, oh yeah, I want that person to come back to faith. But my parents are in the same camp as Margaret's neighbors. The um, my dad even has a fridge magnet. It's about the, there's an organization called Good Without a God. Like he's totally about hmm. doing good works, but doesn't believe anymore. And I know. At, a few people in here that have parents that used to believe and like raised them in the church and then now in our adulthood um, parents aren't aren't decided they don't believe anymore oh that's and a so switch what I said that is a switch you yeah. know with now the parents abandoning the faith rather than the children right but the Lord is merciful and he's kind and he's patient absolutely anyway but yeah just in case anyone needed it out in the air that yes, there's there's I know lots of people have people in their lives that they're designing yeah, absolutely. To love the Lord. <laughs> and that was the point. Uh, again, I'll reiterate the point of this this argument, the argument from desire, because I mean, say you're sitting there with your cousin or with your dad, and he's talking to you about this great movie, and then you like the spirit's yelling at you to witness to this person, and then all of a sudden you're just like, hey, you're going to hell. Like, it doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> now you have a natural segue in that conversation. Why was it so great? Why do you desire these things? Good without God. Why do you desire to do good? And how can you call anything good? Right? I mean, remember the rich young ruler. Good teacher, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a few assumptions in there. Number one, he assumed Jesus was good. Number two, he assumed there was goodness. And number three, he assumed there was an eternal life. How? How can you assume those things without them being proven to you? Those are very three important tenets of life. And to assume that there is eternal life, there is good, and that Jesus is the way to both of those, that's a huge assumption, right? So, yeah. The other thing, too, is um, the brother I'm talking about, he's 40 now. Okay. But he has been, like, really closely connected to a consistent group of friends, and even friends that, like, do life together. I mean, they're deep friendships for a good 20 years, almost. And I think something that he's realizing well, being around these people kind of consistently and, and none of them are seeking the Lord, mm -hmm. I think he's starting to realize that it doesn't age well. It doesn't age well. No. You know, like there's there's people that are crunching into more like misery, you know, misery and like and 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 some of them are it's almost like the world is making them crack a little bit. And, and he's start, they're starting to make choices that are actually disappointing to my brother. Mm. So I think he's starting to feel like he's, I think the Holy Spirit's convicting him of some things. Absolutely. But I think he feels really alone in a way. Because like all these people, they, it's like there was this army of like, we got this. You know, they're highly educated and they, they've done a lot of cool contribution to society mm -hmm. and like all this stuff and they travel and like oh, blah, 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 but like I'm sorry I'm mocking them no because um, God loves them so much um, but it's it's interesting because they're all like 40s and up to 50 like age and I think it's like oh 
it's like there's this darkness that's just, it's a little more irritating. And you know, and yeah. I can't conclude the day or start the day like as feeling like a whole person, feeling confident. Right. Like, yeah, my, what, what, wait, what's my purpose again? Like, it's really well, wild how things just, don't age well. And yet, they're not finding their sense of fulfillment. No. And that's the point of, of having this conversation with folks is because you're like, so we've identified there's a problem. You're not fulfilled, right? You can admit that, whether you're atheist or not. You can say, yeah, I'm not fulfilled in this current thing. Well, then what's the source of that problem? And then how do you plan to fix it? Because I want them in this conversation to get them to realize that there is no earthly thing because I've had it all, that can fulfill this problem. And then when desire meets God, those desires are amplified. I mean, yes. love is greater. You know, uh, uh, doing something anonymously good is, is so much more fulfilling. You know, your prayer life is so much more fulfilling. Your thoughts on righteousness are so much more it's just it has to be paired with God because if it's not it's it's just like that's why you know promiscuity doesn't say stay you know satisfied at monogamy you know it has to go on it has to go on drug addiction it's a higher 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 dose alcoholism it's more and more and more drinks because desire can't be fulfilled it has to be paired with God, and then it just erupts, and it's better. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, and then you can even take the desires, the desires for good things. So what if you, apart from missionary work, apart from serving Christ, went out to build homes for the poor? That would feel good, right? Until you got done with it, and then what? Then you don't feel good anymore, because you're no longer doing something. But however, if you went out as a servant of Christ and you built a home for the poor, and in the process of it presented the gospel, and then was able to disciple them. See, even then, even if you didn't have the contact with that person anymore, you know that you fulfilled the law of your creator. You fulfilled the law of Christ. And then you, yes, you're going to have that desire, but you're not going to have that desire for your own self-pleasure anymore. Do I feel good after mission trips? Yeah! I feel like a great person. I'm, yay, I did something good. <laughs> However... Do I also have that innate that, yes, I pleased God. That is so cool. Right? And, and I did what I was, what? Created to do. Rather than just serving self. What time is it? How much time do we have left? Oh, not much. So, any other questions? I, I hope this makes sense on how to segue into this argument. That was the whole point. Does it? Does it make sense on how to have those conversations? Because I know it's, it's super awkward to have those conversations with the, about the gospel with somebody. Like I said, I mean, how do you, yeah, I saw this great movie. Hey, you're going to hell. Like, it doesn't work that way. You know, you really need to have uh, a door. But this is a way to create that door and to get them to think. And even if they don't, whatever, even if the conversation doesn't go well, but at least you know you've planted and that's my whole point with apologetics, especially with the atheists, is I want to plant a seed of doubt of their worldview. I want them to go home and be introspective and think about it and think, logically, does this make sense? Why do I desire love? 
who cares, right? Why do I desire justice? Again, who cares if it's just the end-all be-all and this is all that we see, this is all that there ever was or ever will be. Um, any more questions before we close in prayer? Yeah. I have a friend that, excuse me. No, 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 you're good. I have a friend that, um, from college, that maybe we text each other once a year uh -huh. or something, and I usually try and throw something at her. And uh, um, we recently had a conversation, and, and then she came back and, and was like, no, she didn't want anything. And so I went back at her with, sounds like you're mad at God. It stops there. Yeah. But um, in that, that movie, um, uh, the, God's Real, God's uh -huh. Real. Uh -huh. You know, and how, the, it, how it went into, like, he was mad at God right. for something. And that gave him an opportunity, that gave him a segue, as you would, um, to find out what he was mad about and to go there. So I haven't heard from my friend, but... I'm sorry about, you know, not hearing from your friend, but... Well, we... Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, we we know that, again, we preach the gospel and that's it. It's, it's up to God to save. Yeah, she's one that, you know, every time I... If I do see her, they, she lives in California, you know, but I'll hug her and she'll go like, don't hug me. I'll go like, you need it. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Were there any other questions? Did you have a question? Well, it's more of a statement about uh -huh. the, the morally justified. Um, it's interesting, like you were saying with your the, that friend group, is their their morals will change to what the world's morals are. Right. So there's that global is always moving to something else. Right, and so, isn't that maddening? Yeah. So it's like with the Lord, we have a steady yeah. goal. And with the world, it's just, it's all over the place from one year to the next, it's something else. Yeah, it can't be achieved. Yeah. I mean, when you're trying to hit a constantly moving target, it can't be achieved. Any hunters out here? Do you ever just wish that buck would just turn broadside and just pose? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, let's see. Uh, I had a senior moment. I had a, I had a thought, but then I lost it. Oh, no. Okay, it's back. <laughs> Not senior yet. So I, I was going to ask, I mean, I know it's a lot of philosophy and, you know, no slides, but is this stuff sticking in okay? Because the past three classes have been a, a lot of philosophy, so, okay, okay, good. Alrighty, well, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much again, Lord, for just the, the truth of your word um, and that we can worship you and that we can know you. Thank you for being known and revealing yourself to us. We just ask that all of our loved ones and friends that don't know you, um, that you would give us the heart and the bravery to continue to have those conversations with them as you've commanded us to. And God, uh, season it with grace. Let us be humble and loving in our conversations. In Christ's name I pray, amen. <laughs>